Good morning, church. It is, it is a pleasure to see so many of you here. I didn't know if the word had gotten out that I was preaching this morning. <laughs> Thought maybe you'd be running for the hills, but I guess not. Um, for those of you that maybe this is your first time joining us today, my name is Adam Falkenstein. I am actually the pastor of uh, Children and Family Discipleship here at North Homestead French Church. Um, but for our Elyria campus, for their benefit, uh, we're actually streaming our service over to them today. And uh, a lot of them, it is their first ever introduction to me. Um, so uh, just want to say welcome. We are glad you're here. Um, if, if you didn't know, I know there's a lot of new faces just in this room in general. Um, every year, Pastor Jeff takes a sabbatical around this time. And so he relinqu uh, relinquishes preaching responsibilities over to the rest of us during that time. Um, so for our newcomers at Illyria, will you allow me just to do a bit of an introduction? Is that okay? Is that all right this morning? Okay. Um, and for those of you who know me, it's just a bit of a refresher. Uh, but as I said, on a normal week-to-week -week basis, I'm the children and family pastor here at the church. In fact, next month, I will be celebrating six years here, if you can believe that. It's been a long time. It doesn't feel like it's been that long, but it, it's been a while. <clears throat> um, I've been married to my lovely wife, Sarah, uh, who many of you know, for a little over seven years now. Um, in so many ways, she is definitive of that term, better half. Um, and if you haven't gotten to know her, especially our friends at Illyria, you need to. Um, because she has a spirit that is infectious and enriches every life that she touches, including mine. Uh, we moved into our first house almost two years ago. We currently reside in Brook Park. That was taken the day that we got the keys. Uh, we have a dog named Layla who loves everyone, and so far everyone has loved her. Um, she's a husky Australian shepherd mix. She has a lot of energy. Uh, she keeps us very busy, and we are figuring out how to manage her with the expectation of our first child, a little baby girl coming up here in November. Um, the years of working with kids together has not scared us off from the idea. Uh, it, in fact, has only gotten us more excited about the idea of being parents. We really cannot wait. Um, another thing that is kind of unique about me in some ways, especially for like a children's pastor, you can't really see it, but I have a lot of tattoos. Um, in fact, in my interview process years ago, I was referred to as the tattoo guy. Um, that, was, that was how they were like kept, you know, who, who when, when there was can, they had the candidates, like who's who is like, okay, so now we're going to talk about the tattoo guy. Uh, and I can't go without saying that I love superheroes. Um, our entire children's ministry, in fact, is modeled after the idea that Jesus is our superhero and we are his sidekicks. And if you know me well, and plenty of you do, you know that at least in terms of popular superheroes, my favorite superhero is Captain America. Very good. I actually have his shield tattooed up on my arm. Uh, so it's safe to assume I'm a pretty patriotic guy. I do. I love our country and the opportunity that it presents. But as time has gone on, and I've grown not only to appreciate the character of Captain America more, but more importantly, the character of who Jesus is. I found that some of those values that I held dearly to, ones I would have considered foundational for every American, didn't quite line up with what I saw modeled by Jesus. And as time has gone on and I've grown closer to Jesus, I've come to realize that there were, to be quite honest, a lot of Christians whose values didn't light up with what I saw modeled in Jesus. See, I used to believe that the personal freedoms we held dear as Americans were naturally translated from the idea of freedom in Christ, but not anymore. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying I know this is a risky message 
the day before Independence Day. But in light of Pastor Jeff's sermon from last week on hating the sin inside of us, I actually think it's quite timely and appropriate for us to examine. I come in today knowing that this message may cause some discomfort, but I'm willing to step into that discomfort with you because while growth is uncomfortable, it's also necessary. The reality is it, it can be very easy for us to commit the sin of pride when it comes to our personal freedom. That's not to say that I don't believe we should value it or celebrate it or even fight for it. Of course I do. I'm Mr. Captain America. But I believe this message contains the truth that has been revealed to me through my time spent with the Holy Spirit. In fact, it would be safe to say I've been preparing this message for the last 10 years. So if you would, please stand with me. Join me as we read from the word of the Lord this morning, from the letter of Paul to the Galatians, beginning in chapter 5, verse 13. Now the title of this, this portion of scripture is Life by the Spirit. Please hear what Paul says. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, meaning the sin inside of us. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. May God add his blessing to his word this morning. Please be seated. So where am I coming from? All right, 10 years of preparation, I said. 10 years of thoughts and study and prayer brought together to convey a point. Why am I so burdened by this message? Well, if you didn't know, in addition to my responsibilities as children's pastor, I've also been leading a young adult group here for the last two months that we call Crossroads. It's a metaphor, the title, for the fact that young adulthood is a place of crossover into maturity and responsibility, but also for the fact that they oftentimes literally find themselves at a crossroads in life with their faith. But truthfully, I've been working with the, the quote-unquote next generation since well before even beginning in ministry. I have served and worked with kids, teens, and young adults in many capacities, both in and out of ministry. And as time has gone on, I have grown more and more concerned for the next generation. Now, you're going to have to stick with me because we're, we're not probably going where you think we're going to go. Yeah, I've spoken from this platform before on those rare opportunities that I get to preach about the fact that in the last 20 or so years, there has been a drastic decline in young adult demographics of having any kind of religious affiliation. And my heart is burdened for a generation of people who increasingly do not know the Lord. But there is a question, a very natural question that rises from that reality. Why? What is driving them away? And so in my attempts to reach the next generation and even thinking about my inevitable next steps as a father within the next generation. I've had to do some studying because the reality is as much as I don't think it or feel it or, or even want to admit it, I'm not a young adult anymore. 
I've crossed over and grown up as much as I would have preferred not to. And so if I want to reach them, I have to understand them. And if I want to understand them, I have to get out of my own comfort zone, learn about them, and assume that my experience is not theirs. See, I've had a lot of conversations with plenty of people from my generation and older generations And we all seem to have these opinions about why this shift is taking place, why this sudden mass change. And the majority of those voices have loved to point the finger at those young heathens and say that they've embraced the world rather than the word. But as I've already told you, their voices and even my voice are not the ones that I'm concerned about. I want the facts, not the opinions. I want to ask the question, what is their experience James Emery White, he's, a, he's one of the leaders in studying the next generation, we call Gen Z, and he has a book that I've been reading through, and I've actually been reading through it again, um, because it's just, it's so rife with wisdom, but it's, it's called Meet Generation Z, Understanding and Reaching the New Post-Christian World, <clears throat> excuse me, and in it he goes in depth about a number of things, but in one section in particular, he specifically talks about this seemingly abrupt social change. And he cites the words of Michael Gerson and Peter Wenner, both of who were former White House speechwriters. And at one point, they gave their insight into the decision of Obergefell v. Hodges. If you're familiar with that, it is the Supreme Court case that resulted in the ruling that the Constitution guarantees a right to same-sex marriage. This is one of those hot topic issues for a lot of Christians. And the answer from a lot of Christians as to why this decision occurred has had to do with everything, ranging from shifting political ideologies to the embracing of sin. Now, to an extent, I would agree on both of those things, but Gerson and Wenner, they posited that it was actually the result of cultural trends that emerged not in the context of homosexual relationships, but heterosexual ones. I'm going somewhere with this. Stick with me. Their words. Marriage was not defined only by the Supreme Court, but by decades of social practice, decades of embracing radical, radical individualism that resulted in a shift in attitudes, behaviors, and laws on divorce, abortion, cohabitation, out-of-wedlock births, gender roles, and now decisively same-sex marriage. White makes the case eloquently that Gen Z is the cultural product of decisions made by earlier generations as opposed to their own. Those words, radical individualism, are more easily translated as personal freedom. I'm using this as a contrasting point because of the fact that it is such a hot topic within the church. But there are plenty of others that we could lay out Drunkenness, coarse language, greed, drug use, gossip, the ever-shifting line on what we consider pornographic, the acceptance of pornography consumption as commonplace, idolatry of people like celebrities and politicians. I could go on, but the point is that what we see is a ge- is generation upon generation of people willing to make more and more allowances for their own sin, but also very ready 
to call out one specific sin as worse than the rest. Now, another thing that a lot of people in church love to talk about is Jesus, and rightfully so. We should. But to be honest, I'm not actually quite as interested in how people talk about Jesus as I am in how they represent him. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. Many of you will be familiar with this passage. It says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. See, when someone rejects the truth, right, we just have to recognize it's not about us. Because they aren't rejecting us. They're really rejecting God, right? The God we know who loves us unconditionally. And that's a true statement. But this gives us a passivity to our faith that is unacceptable. We are called to action as part of the body of Christ. While Peter tells us to be ready to give a defense of our faith, he then goes on to say people should see our words partnered up with our behaviors, our actions. Our actions must be framed through that same lens of gentleness and respect that we are called to with our words. I'll be honest. Over these past few weeks, in light of Roe v. Wade being overturned, I've had some tough conversations with Christian brothers and sisters that I am very close friends with about the words they have chosen to use about people they disagree with. Some Christians can't get that first part about words right, much less their actions. We have to reframe what it means to be a Christian by following the example of Christ. And Christ came to seek and save the lost. So here's our question. Lots of questions this morning. Are we viewing the lost correctly? Are we viewing what we perceive as a lost generation correctly? Are we, like Christ, seeking them that they might be saved? Oftentimes I think the church gets into this mindset of viewing lost people as enemies of the cross. But the reality is that we all, as sinners, are called enemies of the cross. Paul tells us this in Philippians 3.18. It is not the knowing that Jesus was crucified for us that makes us an enemy of the cross. But when we refuse to take up our own crosses, our own desires, and crucify those fleshly passions, when we are unwilling to be crucified with Christ, even and in including how we relate to other people, even and in including how we relate to the next generation, because the reality is this, lost people are prisoners of war, just like we once were. But somewhere along the way, sometimes for some reason, we start to view our rescue as entitlement. We view, whether consciously or not, our being rescued as this badge of merit. We forget that we were slaves to the same sin that is now holding them. We forget that we still struggle with sin, as though somehow our sin isn't as bad as their sin. And instead of marching into that enemy's camp to rescue those prisoners, instead we walk in and we demonize them to their faces as they sit behind those metaphorical prison bars. Where is love there? 
How can we be surprised when we tell those who are imprisoned that they're just as bad as the one that imprisoned them? When we treat them like the enemy? How can we be surprised when they don't want to follow us to salvation? They'll reject us every time if our words and actions hold no gentleness and no respect and no love. Pastor Dave Adamson, he said this. He said, we're all grateful. We are all grateful to, that God showed love for us while we were still sinners until we're called to show love for people who we've determined are still sinning. I follow a few uh, ministry pages for children's leaders, and recently there was a conversation in one forum about movies that contained questionable content and whether or not kids should be allowed to view them. Like, what was the line on what was okay versus not? Now, that could be a whole conversation in and of itself. We're not going to take the message there because I'll be here all day long. But one of those members shared a parable, and some of you might have heard it, about a boy who wanted to see a movie that had something not suitable for kids in it, and so the parents wouldn't let him. And the boy was upset, so the dad baked him some brownies. But he baked a small amount of dog feces into the batter. To prove a point... The point being, one little bit of bad ruins the whole batch. And I get the point that they were trying to make, but it really got me wondering, is this a fair way to view the world? Because here's a question, do we hold the church to that same standard? That one bad thing in it ruins the whole batch? No, of course not. Of course we don't. We make exceptions and excuses. We say the yeah buts, right? Yeah, but that's not every Christian. Yeah, but that's this other religious group. Yeah, but that's not us. No, friends. There is no other body of Christ except for the one. We are called the body for a reason. Because we are a collective People in the church, especially the American church, are quick to cast judgment about the how, how the world is corrupting our kids, how the world has destroyed the next generation. But is it the world's fault that the church, Big C, has committed atrocities as far back as the Crusades in the name of Jesus? Is it the world's fault that the church has often drawn lines in the sand that keep people out as opposed to crossing lines in compassion to draw people in? Is it the world's fault the church has often formatted our conversations of faith and sin in us versus them terminology and demonized entire groups of people? Is it the world's fault the church has often protected corrupt leaders who have abused and assaulted mentally, physically, emotionally, sexually men, women, and children? Is it the world's fault that the church has often had leaders who preach false gospels motivated by political agendas, greed, and self-preservation? Are you uncomfortable? I am. What am I getting at with all this? As Christians, we have to recognize, not just recognize, but repent from the fact that the church has often embraced this radical individualism, this self-serving, personal freedom ideology in exchange for the freedom presented in the Gospels to serve one another in sacrificial love. 
We are called to be counterculture. And yet in so many ways, at times, we are just like the culture with a different coat of paint. But we act like ours is a better shade. Friends, get this. The church is made up of people. People are the ones doing these things. We are the ones doing this. And when we do it, we often justify it on the grounds of knowing Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, that is called deflection. And it is indicative of an abusive relationship. We need to be honest with ourselves. The church has often done many, many good things to be sure, but the church has also often abused the world. And then gone and made it their fault. The fact that the church has done good doesn't negate the bad that the church has done. We have to stop blaming people for not wanting to be in the church and take ownership and responsibility about the fact that we drove them elsewhere into a world that seemingly was willing to love them better than we have. People may have confused acceptance with love, but it is only because for generations the church has neither loved nor accepted people on the same grounds that Christ does. In so many ways, at so many times, we have placed arbitrary benchmarks in place that people can never attain and cast them out when they don't measure up. We have to ask ourselves a very honest question. Have we become the Pharisees? Concerned with the outward appearance of holiness while inside we're rotting. The church needs to admit that it has at times failed in multiple ways to love people properly to practice what we preach, to be Jesus to a sinful world. Because see, we're quick to call for God's judgment on the world, but we need to see, we have evidence of the fact that God has swiftly been casting his judgment upon the church for its failure to love this world as it has been called to love. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on me for the times that I have misrepresented Jesus. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want this church to be a part of that. I said at the beginning, I am concerned for the next generation, but I'm not just concerned for them because of the sin that they find themselves in. I'm more concerned because of the example that's been provided for them. Pastor Russell Moore put it this way. We now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. See, I can't preach to every church in the country. If I could, I would. And I assume there'd be more than a handful that would be offended by the message. There might be a handful of us in here today offended by it. I'll be honest, I'm offended by it. But it doesn't make it any less true. See, this burden began for me with seeing that the next generation is turning away from the church and that the church is largely the cause. I don't blame people when they say they hate Christians. This is not a message that should just only burden us for the next generation, but this generation and all generations. The world does not need to see the body of Christ split by things like religious differences or political ideologies or division language or hypocrisy 
the next generation, the world, needs to see the church united in the freedom that is only found in Jesus Christ. Because if someone's heart is going to be hardened to the work of the Holy Spirit in them, let it not be because they had Jesus misrepresented to them by his bride. No part. You will not find a verse in Scripture that calls us to personal freedom. They don't exist. No part of Scripture has that. But it is always a call to surrender our personal freedom to Christ and to serve one another in love. A paraphrasing of the two greatest commandments. Every time we see freedom mentioned in Scripture, whether directly or situationally, it is within the context of repentance from sin and an invitation to draw into a deeper, more intimate relationship with God and lead others to do the same. The call of freedom in Christ is a call to surrender. The surrender of every other aspect of our lives that we might place above his lordship, even and including our personal freedoms. Anything that we elevate above our relationship with Christ, anything that drives us more than the constant and consistent transforming and conforming of our image to his is idolatry. It is pride. And not the pride that's good. Let us not ever have so much pride in our personal freedoms, or so much pride in ourselves, that we cannot and do not live in the freedom to serve our neighbor in love. Let us not, as Paul warns us, bite, devour, and destroy each other. So on the eve, on the eve of, of celebrating our nation's independence, let's take a second to recognize that our perception of freedom may need to be replaced if we are to live in love like Christ calls us to. The idea of freedom that so many have adopted and often cling to so proudly, we must realize in so many ways, is self-seeking and far from the heart of Christ. It creates in us a sense of superiority, of self-importance, of elevation over, and one cannot humbly serve another in love if that is how they perceive themselves. It's a free country. I can do what I want. Paul tells us, no, we are not to do whatever we want. When we are self-seeking, we elevate the desire to be right, to win. And so many people in their efforts to be right have forgotten to be loving. Well, Jesus was right. And he was also loving. Because while he was full of truth, he was also full of grace. Jesus does not call us to be right. He calls us to be loving. And sometimes that means painfully, uncomfortably, sacrificing our personal freedoms. What we believe to be right for the sake of loving someone else. And instead of winning the argument, winning them to Christ. I've said this before in a previous message, but if we are to be Jesus to a hurting, broken world, we cannot be Americans first and Christians second. Our acceptance of Christ was our acceptance of the burden of his cross, putting all other things secondary, including our personal freedoms. Because we might have been born into a country that applauds and elevates that, 
But as believers, we chose, we made a decision, we chose to be adopted into a new family. We chose to lay that crown down at his feet. It might be uncomfortable, but I said at the beginning, growth is both uncomfortable and necessary. So lay that crown down at his feet and grow in Christ. Jesus is our banner of freedom. Not a country, not a party, not a politician, not a law, not a flag. Please don't mistake this. This isn't an anti-America message. Remember, I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Captain America. I love America. I love our country. But all of those things eventually fall. They all eventually fail. The history books have record after record of that exact thing happening. But the cross does not. It has not. And it never will. If Jesus wanted a Christian nation, he would have established one. In fact, that's what the disciples thought he was going to do. But he didn't. He established the church. So let freedom ring. The freedom we have to love people to life in Jesus Christ. As we close today, if you've joined us this morning, and your heart has been convicted, maybe it's uh, you're holding on to some selfish pride in your personal freedom. Maybe you realize that in your desire to be right about something, you have foregone the call to be loving. You realize there's someone you need to make a call to today and apologize to for being a poor witness of Jesus because of your words or your actions. Or maybe it's, it's that you're holding on to hate in your heart for, her, for a person, for a group of people, that you can't love them. Or maybe, maybe you just need to, for the first time, truly draw towards the heart of Christ. If you need to repent of that sin, I want, I want you to take time this morning while we close to come to the altar because I want to pray with you. And there's others in this room who will come forward to pray with you because as Pastor Jeff said last week, if we're going to hate our sin, the sin inside of us, and be like Jesus to seek this world that it might be saved, we got to humble ourselves. So let's humble ourselves to one another and confess that sin and surround each other with love so that we might love others. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, this is... Uh, I, I feel your spirit moving, Lord. I trust that you're in this place. I know that there, are, there, are, there may be hearts that are hurting because of this message, Lord, because when we, when we take a look in the mirror sometimes, that we, we don't like what we see. But Jesus, I want to reflect you. I don't want to see myself in the mirror. I want to see you. I want this world to see you when they look at me. I want to be loving, Lord. I want to surrender my sense of personal freedom for the sake of other people. I want to love people where they're at tangibly so that they know that I care more about them than I do myself. Lord, let us, let us rebuke pride. Let us rebuke 
the sin of pride and embrace the call, the freedom we have to love other people in you, to place others above ourselves. Let us not bite, devour, and destroy each other, Lord, but let us be a unified body where people look at us and they see your heart. Because, Father, we can't, we can't go out and fix every church building, every church body that exists in this world, but we can do the personal work on ourselves, Lord. We can be a unified body, a body that loves our community, that loves our people well, that in our private moments we seek to elevate others and build them up and love them, not to tear down and destroy. Father, create in all of us a new heart, a clean heart, a heart that is filled with love and compassion for, for the lost, as Jesus's was, that we would not look at them as our enemies, but see them correctly, view them correctly as prisoners. Lord, send us in. Send us in to rescue those lost souls and help us to do it with gentleness and respect, with love for one another, with compassion for one another. Father, may we draw close to your heart, not run from it, Create, us, create something new in us, Lord, that we would reflect you properly and purely to this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.